0: Let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of Judges, chapter number 15. Judges, chapter number 15 tonight. We're going to return once again to the uh, story of Samson this evening. And before we look into uh, chapter 15 tonight, I just want to kind of very quickly review Judges, chapter 14 from last week. Judges chapter 14, we read the story of Samson having seen a a Philistine woman, wanting to marry her, and going to his parents and making a demand, get her for me. Reluctantly, they agreed and they went down and there was this engagement party that lasted a week. And during that engagement party, Samson had told a little riddle based on an encounter he had with a lion on the way down to visit her. And because of this riddle, he had had made a a bet with the Philistines that if they couldn't guess the answer to the riddle, they would have to give him uh, 30 changes of garments and 30 sheets. I don't know many guys that are really that into linens, but I guess he was. Well, they couldn't figure out the answer because it was, it was so vague, nobody could guess the answer. And so they threatened Samson's fiancé, find out the answer, or we'll kill you and your family. And so she, obviously very upset, went to Samson, asked him for the answer. He wouldn't give her the answer until finally uh, she had uh, had become so distraught and just continually um, Bothered him about this. It says she laid sore upon him, verse number 17. And uh, he finally told her. Well, she went and she told uh, the Philistines who were involved in this little gamble and they came back and they guessed, quote-unquote, the answer. But Samson knew right away what they had done, that they had, had, uh, had gotten to his fiancée, his wife-to-be, and she had, she had betrayed him in a sense. So he leaves and he goes down to a place called Ashkelon. He kills 30 Philistines there, took their took their clothes and the spoil of that came back. He gave these guys the changes of garment and linen. And in verse 20 it says that or verse 19 it says that his anger was kindled and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion whom he had used as his friend. There's a period of time that elapses after this. We're not sure exactly how long, probably at least a, at least a few weeks, maybe more like a few months, probably not a, a very long period of time, but there's a little bit of time that takes place, or you know, that elapses rather. Before we get now to chapter 15, look with me at verse number 1. But it came to pass within a while after, in the time of wheat harvest, that Samson visited his wife with a kid and he said, I will go in to my wife into the chamber, but her father would not suffer him to go in. And her father said, I verily thought that thou hadst utterly hated her, therefore I gave her to thy companion. Is not her younger sister fairer than she? Take her, I pray thee, instead of her. And Samson said concerning them, now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. And Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took firebrands and turned tail to tail and put a firebrand in the midst between two tails. And when he had set the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn of the Philistines and burnt up both the shocks and also the standing corn with the vineyards and olives. Tonight I want to look with you into Judges chapter 15 to learn a little bit about the vicious cycle of vengeance, the vicious cycle of vengeance. Heavenly Father, we need your help to understand your word tonight, and we certainly need your help whenever we've been wronged, not to retaliate and seek revenge. So Lord, help us to see from Samson's poor example what to avoid, that we would graciously forgive and trust you to wrong the rights and execute true justice. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are going to be many, many times in our lives when people do us wrong. And when I say people do us wrong, I don't mean they just maybe are a little rude maybe hurt our feelings a little bit, or maybe make our lives a little bit more inconvenient. I'm saying there's times where people will sin and you will bear the brunt of their sin. We would say that this way, they would sin against you. Now, when someone does us wrong, we all in our flesh have a natural impulse to want to get back at that person. We want someone who has wronged us to experience the same kind of wrong that they did to us. Our impulse is to then seek revenge to wrong people back for the wrong that they've done to us. We see this in our world all around us. And the result of this is a vicious downward spiral of reciprocal vengeance. Reciprocal means back and forth. Somebody does something wrong, so that person gets back at that person. Well, then that person feels wrong, so they get back at this person. And there's this back and forth of vengeance that just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. We see this globally, between nations. We see it in our own country with politics. We see it far too often in homes in relationships between husband and wife, between parents and children. And what we must understand tonight is that whenever we give in to the temptation to seek revenge, we only make matters worse. It will never satisfy us. It will never bring us the fulfillment or the happiness that we think it will, it will only leave us more frustrated and more miserable. We're going to see how this exact pattern happened in Samson's life in Judges chapter 15. Number one, let's see Samson's attempt to reconcile in verse number one. Some time has passed and Samson has kind of cooled off. Remember, he left very angry from the engagement party. And the indication here is that the, really the wedding was never really completed. You see, in, in Bible times, uh, a wedding was much more of, a, of an event than even today. I mean, some weddings today, to be honest, they can get kind of crazy. But when's the last time you ever heard of somebody having a wedding that took a week? You know, it's not. that's just not how we do it in our culture. But in their culture, that was how they did it. And so there's an indication here that, that the wedding never really technically finished because when Samson left, verse 20 of chapter 14 tells us that his fiancée's father gave her to another guy, probably one of those 30 guys that were called to the party, his companion whom he had used as his friend. But now Samson's cooled off a little bit He's realized that he was a little bit rash. He'd lost his temper. And he decides that he's going to go back and he's going to try and make it right. So he goes back and the Bible says he brings a, a gift with him. that He brings a, a baby goat. That's what the word kid here means. He didn't bring a small child with him. All right. <clears throat> I'm sorry here I brought you a toddler. No, that's not what it was. He brought a baby goat. And I guess in that culture that would have been uh, uh, you know, something that was very valuable, something that at least indicated in some way that, you know, you you wanted to make amends. Um and you wanted to he wanted to make it right. And he his idea was that he was going to go back and he was going to make it right and he was going to marry this girl. But it says in verse number one that his father would not suffer him to go in. So there's at least an attempt here on Samson's part to make it right. Now as we go through Samson's story, we're going to see more and more that he made a lot of bad decisions. He was not a man of good character. But whenever he does something right, I want to give him credit for it. And I believe that he is, at least in this particular instance, taking a step in the right direction of trying to keep his word. Now, there's the whole backstory here of him not having, should have not, never even sought to marry a Philistine. But that aside, let's at least give him credit for saying that he wanted to make it right. So there's an attempt to reconcile here. But in verse number 2, this attempt is, is unsuccessful because the father steps in and says, I verily thought that thou hadst utterly hated her, therefore I gave her to thy companion. Is not her younger sister fairer than she? Take her, I pray thee, instead of her. So here is the father's attempt to replace. Now, we understand probably why this dad thought that Samson was never coming back in the way that he left. I mean, it was pretty obvious Samson was really mad and it was a logical conclusion to him. He's not going to come back and marry my daughter. So he gave her to this other guy. But what really sticks out to me in this verse is how the father tried to make it up to Samson. He said, but I've got, I've got another daughter, the younger sister, and guess what? She's prettier. Why don't you take her instead. That should shock you. If you're sitting there thinking, well, that makes sense. Come talk to me afterwards. We need to chat a little bit. Okay. How in the world could a father treat his daughters this way? I'll be honest, it makes me a little mad. What a low view of his daughters that he had that he felt like he could just give them away to whomever he, he wished? I mean, there's no record here that he had gone to the younger, younger sister and said, hey, do you want to marry this guy? No, he just volunteers her. And then look at this comparison that he's making. Here's a younger sister, you know, she's actually prettier. Really? If, we got, if there's dads in here, I know we got dads in here with daughters, okay? All of our daughters are the prettiest, okay? It's just how it is. There's no comparing the two. That's wrong. God makes each individually. What a low view of his girls. But then I think about what an ungodly view of marriage that this man had. That his sole appeal to Samson for marrying his daughter was physical attraction. That's the world's idea of marriage that is based solely on physical attraction. That's ungodly. Marriage is absolutely the most sacred institution on earth. Marriage was not invented by man. It was ordained by God. In the garden when God made Eve and brought her to Adam, God officiated the first wedding and established the home. Marriage is sacred. And to have such a light and a low view indicates just how depraved this Philistine culture had become. Maybe you're getting ahead of me here, but can you see the connection between what we're reading here and what's going on in our country today? What has marriage become in our country? It has become something that you can define however you want to define. Some years ago now, the Supreme Court took it upon themselves to redefine marriage. It didn't have to be between a man and a woman. It could be between two men. It could be between two women. And that's now ha- that now has to be the law of the land. Well, let me tell you, this is an instance where the law of the land does not agree with the Word of God. And therefore, we go with the Word of God. God-defined marriage. Marriage is a sacred institution. And we see in our culture today such a low view of marriage. More and more people are avoiding it altogether. The statistics are staggering the number of younger folks who are opting just not to marry at all. They will just coexist. They'll just live together and and they will have a a, a non-traditional family is what they will say. That's an indication of a culture that has gone far away from God. Because here's the thing. Your behavior will always reflect the God you worship. If you do not worship the God of the Bible, it will be evident in your life. And the Philistines did not worship the God of the Bible. They worshiped many false gods. And part of that worship in and of itself, was very immoral, but it resulted in a completely immoral culture. And so there's this attempt by the father to replace the one daughter for the other daughter, demonstrating just how depraved the Philistines really are. So notice with me now number three, Samson's revenge. Verse number 3, he said, Now I shall be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. Samson got mad. I'm going to get even for y'all, with you all for doing this. He had a plan here. He went out and uh, the Bible says that he caught 300 foxes. I wish we had some more details about that. How did he do it? Did he run and catch them? Did he set up traps and trap them? We don't know. Obviously, he caught them live somehow. But he had this plan where he caught 300 foxes and he took them and he tied them tail to tail in pairs. He put a firebrand between the two of them and then he would he went around the countryside lighting these firebrands and turning these pairs of foxes loose in all of the fields. Now, we know from verse number one <clears throat> that this was a time of wheat harvest. So this is when... Everything is just getting ripe and beginning to dry out so that it's ready to be harvested. So you can imagine how quickly these fires would spread. If you've ever seen a grass fire before, you know it can take off and it can it can it can spread very quickly. Now this would have taken him some time to do. All right, this didn't happen all in an instance. It's not like he showed up at her house with a wagon full of, you know, foxes. And no, this was something that he did in anger, but notice how cunning and calculated this really was. This was designed to do maximum damage to the Philistine economy. I mean, it would have wiped out a large portion of their crops for that season. It would have left them low on food. They wouldn't have had it to sell or to trade, so it would have been a financial um, um, burden to, for them so this was very much designed for maximum destruction and it worked because the Bible says that it burnt up both the shocks and the standing corn with the vineyards and olives these wildfires began to spread beyond the wheat fields and it burnt up olive groves and vineyards and it was an agricultural disaster Why did he do this? One word, revenge. Revenge. As a side note here, there's a verse in Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon 2.15, Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. I wonder if Solomon was thinking about this story when he wrote that. This is an instance where Samson didn't get suited up in armor and and go out with chariots and attack them in traditional battle. No, he took a very cunning and a very calculated, a very sneaky way of getting revenge. He used little foxes. I mean, think about it. You look out and you see a field that's on fire. Where... Who's, who started this fire? You don't see any people. Maybe you see a little grass moving here and there. But all of a sudden these fires are spreading everywhere and you don't even know what's causing these fires until maybe after some time somebody sees a pair of these foxes and realizes what's happened. And, and we'll see in a moment that, that, is what, that somebody finally figured this out. But this was all calculated to be very cunning. Very subtle, you might say. And here's my point. Not all revenge is done in a very outright manner. A lot of times, our vengeance on other people is subtle, it's cunning, it's giving someone the cold shoulder, it's the whisper behind their back of gossip. It's the the sideways glance that lets them and others know that uh, you don't really trust them. And it's those little things that can be just as devastating as the big things. So now let's notice verse number 6, the Philistines' retribution. When the Philistines said, Who hath done this? They answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he had taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burnt her and her father with fire. They're trying trying to put out all of these wildfires, and somebody says, Who caused this? Who's... Who's responsible for this? And somehow they, find, they investigate and they find out that this was Samson who did it. We don't know how they, they found that out, but they learned who it was. They learned why it happened, because the Timnite had not given his daughter to him. Instead, he gave her to another guy, and Samson was mad about it. So what did the Philistines do? They went and killed this, this woman and her father. Do you not see how brutal these people were? Now, in verse, in chapter 14, they threatened her, if you don't get us the answer, we're going to burn you and your father's house. She's distraught, so out of fear, most likely, she betrays Samson and gives them the answer. But notice what happens here. She still loses her life. These vengeful people who she tried to placate by finding the answer out for them and giving them the answer, she tried to... to uh, 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 to dampen their wrath and their anger by betraying her husband, they still came back and killed her. She suffered the same fate she hoped to avoid through her betrayal of Samson's trust. Let this be a very vivid reminder to us that you cannot avoid the consequences of sin with more sin. You can't avoid the consequences of sin... By sinning more. You have to do what is right. Look, it was wrong for her to betray Samson's trust. But she did it to save her own neck. And look how it worked out. And there are many times where we are tempted to sin. We're tempted to tell a lie. We're tempted to violate this scriptural command. Because we think that. We can avoid some consequence that that we would rather not have to deal with if we would just do this sin. We could get away with it. It doesn't work that way. It is always better to do right. Now understand this. Doing right is not always easy. Sometimes doing right is very hard. Sometimes there are consequences for doing right. Jesus told his disciples, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A cross is an instrument of pain, torture, and execution. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to be willing to bear that. He goes on to say in that same passage, Luke 14, that we need to count the cost. He gives a parable of, well, two parables. One of a king that's about to go into battle. What does he do? He sits down and he counts up his army and he counts up the other army and he says, do I have a good chance of winning this fight? He gives another illustration of a man who goes to build something. And before he builds it, he'd better sit down and figure out his budget because if he doesn't have enough to finish, everybody's going to laugh at him when he gets it half built and runs out of money. And so Jesus says, count the costs. Before you decide to follow Christ, make sure you know that it's not going to be cheap. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. Sometimes as Christians, we're going to face consequences for standing for what is right and for doing what is right. And there will be a temptation to just back off the truth, to back away from righteousness and holy living, to to compromise, to avoid that cost. But in so doing, we are choosing an even pricier route. Because sin also has a cost. So there's a price to following Christ, but it's worth it. The price of sin is not. Because sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Samson's fiance learned that lesson too late. Notice now from verses 7 and 8, Samson's retaliation. We are now in the middle of this cycle. Samson was wronged. Well, let's back up. It actually started in chapter 14 when Samson wronged his fiancée. He comes back. Now he's been wronged. So what does he do? He wrongs the Philistines. Now what do the Philistines do? They wrong Samson's fiance and her, her family. So now what does Samson do? Verse 7 and 8. Samson said unto them, Though ye have done this, yet will I be... What's that next word, verse 7? Avenged. Avenged. Samson was not pursuing justice. He was pursuing vengeance. Let me tell you something. When you hear people in our culture today, here in America, on the news, on social media, when you hear people talking about justice... Most of the time, what they really are talking about is vengeance. There there is an intentional push to confuse the two. They don't want reparations oftentimes. They want retribution. It's vengeance. And that's that's what Samson is seeking here. He says it in his own words. I will be avenged. I will be avenged of you, and after that I will cease. And he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And he went down and he dwelt in the top of the rock, Etom. Here, apparently, there was this encounter with Samson and a large group of the Philistines, this mob, perhaps, that had been responsible for burning this Timnite and his daughter in their house. And there's this encounter, and Samson attacks them, and the Bible says that he slaughtered them. He smote them hip and thigh. I mean, this was a, I mean, just utter destruction. They didn't stand a chance against him. Now at this point, I want to acknowledge something. We're talking a lot about Samson's part in this story, but let's pull back for a second. And let's acknowledge God's plan throughout this whole thing. Because God had a bigger plan and He was working through a very flawed man called Samson to accomplish that plan. God's larger plan was to punish the Philistines and bless the Israelites by delivering them from the Philistines. And that is not to say that God is endorsing Samson's wrong choices. I believe I, I said this last week, that we have the choice. We can either allow God to rule our lives or God will overrule our lives. And in this instance, we have God overruling Satan or Samson's bad decisions to do what God had purposed to do, to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. And it begins really in earnest here with this encounter where Samson, in a, apparently a short period of time, destroys a great number of them. We're not told exactly how many, right, at this point. And when he's done, he goes and he, he goes to this, this hilly area, the, this particular mountainous rock area called Etom. So we have Samson's retaliation here. But then verses 9 and following we have the Philistines' reprisal. It says, The Philistines went up and pitched in Judah. Now we are in full-scale war. And they spread themselves in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why are ye come up against us? And they answered, To bind Samson are we come up, to do to him as he hath done to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went to the top of the rock Etam. And said to Samson, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? And what is this thou hast done unto us? And he said unto them, notice this phrase, As they did unto me, so have I done unto them. You hear the vengeance in that? Verse 12, They said unto him, We are come down to bind thee, that we may deliver thee into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said unto them, swearing to me that ye will not fall unto me yourselves. And they spake unto him, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hand, but surely we will not kill thee. And they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. And when he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him. So there's this. First slaughter of Samson and the Philistines and he goes to this rock Etam, and the Philistines are so enraged that they send out a battalion of their army, their soldiers, to go and capture Samson. They want their vengeance now. You see, we're in this back and forth. Somebody did someone wrong, so that person got even, so this person got even, so that person got even and now it's the Philistines' turn to get even. So they come to where Samson is and they, they pitch their tents in this area called Lehi in the area of Judah. And the, the people of Judah, the men of Judah come out and say, What are you here for? Why are, why are you coming against us? Why are you attacking us? And they said, We want Samson. And notice what Judah did. They sent 3,000 men to get Samson. Now that tells you something right there about Samson's reputation. They didn't just send a squad. They sent 3,000 men. And even then, when they came, they asked for his permission to tie him up. (laughs) But they come to him and they say, Samson, what have you done? Don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? That's one of the saddest statements in the book of Judges right there. Do you hear the defeat in their voice? These are the people of God. They shouldn't be ruled by the heathen. They should not be ruled by worshiper of, of idols. But they're living in total defeat. Samson, what, why are you doing this? You know that there are rulers. They have no right to be ruling over them. These men of Judah are cowards. They're not willing to stand up for what is right. They're not willing to stand up for themselves. Man, let me say to you that on this Father's Day... We need to have some courage. We need to have some backbone. Stand up for what is right. To defend the truth. Protect our families. More and more, it's going to take Christian men of courage if we're going to make a difference in this world. If we're going to protect our families from the evil one who's working hard to destroy them. But these men of Judah come cowering up to Samson. Samson says, what do you want? Um, we, we uh, well, um, we, we want to tie you up and take you to the Philistines. Samson says, promise me that you won't kill me. Oh, no, 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 we, we, we won't kill you, Samson. Just, just want to take you over there. So he lets them take him down. And the Philistines shouted against him. Verse 14. He was betrayed by his own people because they were living in defeat. They had settled for dominion. Christian, don't ever settle for defeat. You may be struggling right now with something that you feel like you cannot get victory over. And you're tempted just to quit fighting altogether. Just to give in. Just go with it. Just live with it. It is what it is. Don't do it. Don't accept defeat. But thanks be to God who giveth, giveth us the victory in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. We can live in victory. Don't accept defeat. They tie Samson up, they take him down. And the Bible says in verse 14 that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his hands loosed from or, uh, bands loosed from off his hands. And he found a new jawbone of, a, of an ass and put forth his hand and took it and slew a thousand men therewith. If you're keeping outline, this last point is the Philistines routed. Samson comes down, and then the Bible tells us specifically that he was able to do this by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came upon him. He was given the supernatural strength to break the bands that were tying him up. He, he finds a donkey's jawbone, because he didn't have any other weapons on him. Obviously, if they're delivering him to the Philistines, they're not going to give him his armor and his sword and all of the stuff. So he grabbed the first thing that he could find, a donkey's jawbone. And what he does with that astounds everyone. He kills a thousand Philistines on this very spot. It's quite a feat. You look at the stories of David's mighty men, and none of them even compared to what Samson did here. And when he gets done, verse 16, Samson said... With a jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with a jawbone of an ass, have I slain a thousand men. And it came to pass when he made an end of speaking that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand and he called the place Ramath-Lehi. So the name of this place was Lehi. Now here's something that will help you understand what's going on in the story. In the original, which the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, there's a play on words here. The word Lehi means jawbone. And so there was a, this area was known as the jawbone. And it was in this area that he found an actual jawbone and he used it as a weapon. So when he gets done, he kind of renames the place Ramath-Lehi, which means the mountain of the jaw. The mountain of the jaw. The Philistines were totally routed here. It was a total defeat Because God intervened. Again, this is not not the Lord condoning Samson's sinful choices. It's an instance of God and His sovereignty overruling so that His plan is fulfilled. But I want you to notice with me verses 18 through 20, Samson's regret. And he was sore athirst... And called on the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die for thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? Now, you would think after this amazing victory, Samson would be on top of the world, that he would just be thrilled, that he would be excited, that he would just, I mean, have the greatest sense of satisfaction. But that's not what happened. He got thirsty and thought he was going to die. Does that not strike you as a little odd too? Like, uh, are you being a little bit dramatic here, Samson? That you're going to, because you're thirsty? I mean, I understand you just fought off a thousand guys. Obviously, you're going to be tired. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be thirsty. But is it really that bad that instead of turning to God and saying, thank you, Lord, for giving me victory this day, you turn to God and say, well, are you going to let me die of thirst now? Which is what he did. So God did something special for him. In verse 19, it says, God clave in hollow place that was in the jaw. And there came water there out. When he had drunk, his spirit came again and he revived. Wherefore, he called the name thereof Enhak which is in Lehi unto this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. I told you a minute ago that there's a play on words here. And so that has led to a little bit of a question when it says that God clave in hollow place that was in the jaw that Samson drank out of it, did he drink out of the actual bone jaw that he had used or did he drink out of a a well or a spring that God caused to come up in the mountainside there? I I like the picture of him drinking from a jawbone of a donkey, a literal bone myself. But really that's beside the point. The point is that God graciously provided Samson for what he needed. So no, he didn't die there of thirst. But what I want you to see with me is how after this whole vicious cycle finally plays out, Samson seems worse off than he ever was. There's no joy. There's no satisfaction. There's no fulfillment. Instead, he was remorseful. Am I just going to die now? Was his attitude and his question. Because, folks, that's the cycle of vengeance. That even if it all plays out and after all of the evil back and forth are finally done, even if you come out on top, even if you're the winner, you're still the loser. Samson was victorious, but he was miserable. So even if you win, you lose when you seek vengeance. And that's why Romans 12, 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You realize that whenever you try to take vengeance on someone else, you're basically trying to be God. Because God says, vengeance is mine. And when you say, well, no, I'm going to do it, you're putting yourself in God's position. That's idolatry of the worst kind, Because now you have made yourself God. Maybe you've heard somebody say this. Maybe it was tongue-in-cheek, maybe it wasn't. Something to this effect, I don't get mad, I get even. That kind of a spirit leads to the vicious cycle of vengeance. And the result of it is always destruction, misery. Instead, we need to give place to wrath. That means we need to give it a lot of space, stay away from it. Don't give in to the temptation to lose your temper. I know we all feel the same way when somebody wrongs us. We want to get even. We want to see them hurt for the hurt they caused us. We want to see them have to go through what we're having to suffer through. But that is not a Christ-like spirit. Do not avenge yourself. God will repay. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. With heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Maybe there is someone here tonight that you are presently going through a situation where somebody has wronged you. It may be recent, or this may be going back a long time, but you're still dealing with it. Have you given in to the temptation to be vengeful? Have there been times where you have done things, even if they were not overt, but maybe even under the surface, backhanded things to get even with that person? To see them suffer at least a little for what they did to you? Well, if so, you need to understand tonight that that's sin. And you need to confess it. You need to get it right with God. And do you see tonight how that that cycle only makes things worse and worse? There has never been peace and reconciliation. As a result of vengeance. It only causes more pain. And for you. Even if you win. You're still going to lose. Because you'll be stuck with regret. So tonight. Whatever it is that somebody's done to you. You need to give it to God. You need to let Him make it right.